0: Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now here's our host, Tom Salemi. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. You're now listening to the OIS Podcast, the first OIS Podcast of 2019. Happy New Year to you all. Hope you enjoyed your breaks and had some time off with your families. Uh, We have not posted a podcast in a few weeks, so uh, we hope you've enjoyed uh, the time away, but uh, we're ready to get back to work to start telling you the stories you need to hear about uh, ophthalmology and optometry. We're going to talk today with Susan Orr. Susan is the newly minted CEO of Notell Vision, and uh, she recently just assumed the post actually this month after uh, the announcement later last year. So we'll talk to Susan about uh, her path from optometry into the corporate world, into the startup world, and finally into the corner office. So it's a great pleasure to have her on the program. All right, before we get into the interview, though, I want to remind you that OIS at Seco is happening on February 21st in New Orleans. Please go to ois.net to register. We'll have a a little bit of a snippet of an interview I did with one of our co-chairs during the break uh, that we will have in this interview. So uh, stay tuned for some more news about OIS at Seco. But now let's get into this conversation with Susan Orr of Notel. Well, Susan Orr, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Tom. Great to be here.
0: Congratulations on your new post. You started as uh, president and CEO of Notel this month, correct?
1: On January 1, New Year's Day.
0: Happy New Year. That's exciting. Well, we'll get into that transition in, uh, in a few minutes, but uh, as we typically do, I like to start at the beginning. Uh, how did you uh, find your way into eye care? You actually uh, are an optometrist by training. How did that come to be?
1: I am. I'm actually a Canadian optometrist by heritage. I grew up in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, capital of Canada, and always knew that I wanted to go into eye care. My brother actually sustained a retinal hemorrhage from a badminton bird injury when I was very young. Oh. And yeah, uh, good news was his vision uh, was recovered uh, through multiple surgeries. And uh, that really triggered it for me. I just I hung out in the hospitals, met the doctors. And when I went to university, it was really just a question of, of how I wanted to participate in eye care. I went to the University of Waterloo and did an undergrad in uh, chemistry and physics, and then decided to move on and and go to optometry, and uh, that really opened the door for me and went into private practice when I graduated in Ottawa.
0: How long did you practice for?
1: I actually practiced for 10 years. That went by very, very quickly. Started a practice when I graduated and grew it. Uh, It's still there today. I don't think it has my name on the door any longer. But um, the practice is still in Ottawa and has multiple optometrists and staff uh, there.
0: Wow, that's great. So what happened uh, after 10 years? Did you uh, decide you wanted to do something a bit different or was there a serendipitous opportunity that, uh, that led you into joining the industry side of the business?
1: It was a little bit of a a pathway. I had participated in some medical device clinical trials while I was in practice, mainly with uh, contact lenses of novel um, designs. Toric lenses were actually fairly new at that point in time, and I became interested in innovation and changing the way that uh, we manage patients and, and what we have to offer them. And my husband at the time worked for Nortel Networks, so a good Canadian company that's uh, out of business. And we relocated to Texas uh, with the idea that I would then go work with Alcon and, and they'd offered me a position in clinical development. And that was really my uh, foray, first foray into the industry side of the business.
0: Did you have any idea that you would, you would take to something like this? Was it something you had desired?
1: You know, I didn't, but I tend to be someone who likes to try new things and I couldn't see myself doing the same thing every day in private practice for the rest of my career. I was fascinated by the eye and eye care, but daily routine practice is is fairly routine, hence the name. And the novelty of uh, industry and studying drugs, uh, developing devices, moving them through the market, uh, or to the market. Was something that really appealed to me. I wanted to understand it. I think I have learner as one of my top traits on that Strength Finder uh, assessment that everyone has to do. And so the learning piece and expanding, getting the thirty thousand foot view was really important to me.
0: What sort of advice would you give to a, uh, an optometrist or an ophthalmologist who's looking at the uh, at a transition to uh, to joining a company? Is there are there some questions that they should answer about themselves or any uh, insights from your uh, from your move uh, after 10 years in practice
1: I think one has to really be self-aware to understand whether it's it's the right transition even once I was working um, at Alcon where I moved to from private practice uh, there were doctors and academics that came in and left because they, it wasn't a good fit, you know, with who they are and, and what they like to do, where they get their pleasure, um, and their career satisfaction. Uh, for me, it's, it's learning and problem solving, uh, but if you're someone who likes routine and also likes to manage their time, um, in a very regular schedule, private practice does that Uh, to a much greater degree than working in industry. Uh, Anyone who works for a a medical device or or pharmaceutical or biologics company can attest to the fact that it's almost 24-7 in today's work environment. Whereas if you own and manage your own clinical practice, you can set your hours, you can choose to work more or less. um, So that flexibility um, really does disappear. But on the flip side, uh, for me, I get an adrenaline uh, rush from working in this field, from thinking about what could be and what the change is that we can participate in making for the patients at the end of the day.
0: Did you miss out on working with uh, patients regularly?
1: It's a good question. I think at the end of the day, I missed the relationships with the patients. I knew some of them very well. I knew their families, their children, their parents. Uh, But I would say that um, absent that, I probably spend more time learning about pathology and understanding the advances in, in, um, in disease knowledge in industry than I would have in private practice. So I, for me, industry filled the the any void I would have. It was it's you know more than enough. Uh, but again, as you say, people have to really you know know thyself and understand what it is that motivates you and makes you happy um, every day.
0: And uh, after a nice stint at, at Alcon, you uh, you moved over to to Johnson and Johnson. Uh, what was that uh, transition like?
1: It was always hard. I was at Alcon for 18 years, and I worked in a variety of roles. I started off working in clinical development on Travitan. This was at the beginning of the prostaglandin era um, and moved around from phase one, business development strategy, pipeline strategy, uh, new product strategy, and commercial. So I I had worked across the organization and um, really enjoyed my uh, time there. I made the move because I felt like I needed to broaden. You know, you, it, Some people shed their skin every five years. I might do it more frequently, but I felt like at the, that point moving to a new company was really what would allow me to do that. And J&J at the time uh, was looking to expand into the ophthalmic space. They had one retina program inside Janssen, a cell therapy program, but when I was recruited it was with the idea that we would build out a larger pipeline. While I was there, Uh, the decision was made to expand more into the um, medical device side. So as everyone knows, J&J bought uh, AMO uh, from Abbott and really uh, put that with the vision care uh, side. And for me, I'm kind of married to the retina now. I've been working in it very intensely for the last more than 10 years. And wanted to stay in that, and that's that's the main reason I left. The opportunity that was presented to me uh, at No Television, and the desire to stay working in the retina field.
0: And at No Tell, you know, let's talk about a bit about that transition. Were you looking at? Uh, I mean, did you did you harbor throughout your career sort of a, a, a hunger or desire to join a, a startup to be uh, or a smaller company to be part of those stories, the, the smaller story, the more focused story, kind of the romantic. Uh, startup story, is that uh, something that had appealed to you?
1: For a number of years at Alcon, I led the pharmaceutical alliances, uh, which meant scanning the landscape for opportunities for Alcon to partner with and then leading the um, due diligence process. So, in the course of that role, I got to know most of the CEOs of companies that played in the ophthalmic space that were looking to partner and or be acquired by a large um, larger company. And I was tempted by the culture, the um, passion, the atmosphere, and also the um, – there's a real lack of um, bureaucracy in small companies. You, things move quickly. They're agile. They have to be agile if they don't move forward and and generate data and advance the program, then the company closes. So I had a really close um, – uh, exposure to the startup world, and it was tempting. I almost decided to do that immediately, leaving um, Alcon, but instead uh, chose to uh, move to j and j. so when uh, the opportunity arose um, while I was at j and j and with the background of the pathway that j and j was um, following. It was almost, you know, almost a complete no-brainer for me. I was like, yes, I absolutely want to go there. And part of that was the the company, the the technology, but also the leader, uh, Quinton Oswald, who I um, took the reins from on January one, was was the CEO. He just moved from Neurotech over to No Television, and I had known him peripherally um, prior to J and J but um, we looked at his, at the Neurotech technology, and I'd done due diligence on it many times, and I really admired him. He's someone who develops people. He's a great leader, and the opportunity to work directly for him as the chief medical officer uh, was something I couldn't pass up. I thought, if I'm going to make the move, the stars don't line up any better than this.
0: So did you have an idea that uh, you might want to be CEO At some point yourself of that company or any company, any startup?
1: I would say that when I graduated, I started um, my own optometry practice and I built it out. And while it's not, you know, it was a few million, but not multi-millions. It was it was the same type of role where you're looking not only at the operations, you're looking at the strategy, managing HR. I think you take on a lot of the leadership functions all in one person. And so I knew I liked that. I love the 30,000 foot view. I love strategy and problem solving, as I said. I guess I always hoped that that would be um, something in my future, the the end game, so to speak. Um, Doesn't mean it will be. There's a lot of people who would love to have the opportunity to lead a company that may never have it. Uh, but for me, I, I had looked forward and thought if that opportunity arose, then um, it was something that I would definitely uh, accept the, the challenge.
0: Have you done anything uh, to prepare yourself for the role? Have you uh, read any good books lately or uh, had any, <laughs> any takeaways from, from uh, watching folks like Quentin do the job?
1: I've heard podcasts are a really good way to educate yourself, right?
0: They are fantastic. They are wildly informative and entertaining, yes.
1: (laughs) So uh, when you take on a new role, you always line up your capabilities and your your skill sets and competencies against what the role will require. And I think for me, the largest gap when I did that assessment was uh, finance, finance, I, you know, with a physics background, I'm great at numbers, but I don't have the formal training in uh, finance to put the numbers in the right places. So I'm currently enrolled in the Wharton Business School in their management program, which is a two-year program. You take eight courses. Uh, Very, I think that that will be a great addition and foundation to the real-world experience that I'm gaining in in the role. So I do think I. did that analysis as preparation and worked with Quentin and our our board to define what the resources could be. Um, I'm also working, um, Quentin is still on as an advisor to me, so I have him as a resource for the next year at least.
0: I will take a quick break from this interview with Susan or to give you sort of an interview within an interview. This is a uh, portion of an interview I did with Jim Timmons one of the uh, co-chairs of OIS at SECO, talking about the uh, value of combining OIS with SECO. So just hold on.
2: Look, I've, I've had the honor and the uh, real pleasure of attending OIS at uh, Askris and uh, other meetings. And I have to say that when I when I went to my first OIS, I literally walked out with a cell phone full of forward messaging saying, you know, this is the technology. Look this up. Look this up. I had twenty two <laughs> that I really was just taken by. And I went back and I spent time with them. And I even called up two of my best friends and said, this has to happen in our profession because there's just so much information that crosses over on both sides. And yet, you know, we're just not giving that unique view of the industry perspective, the investment community. Uh, the the forward thinking of the you know the C-suite officers and how they want to you know roll the product out and where they anticipate the impact points will be within healthcare. And uh, we had a small version at SeCO, which I thought went well, and specifically the one at AOA that was a small another version I thought went particularly well uh, uh, So I, I think this is a great opportunity for optometry. And I think hopefully OIS will enjoy that as well because it's a way to take a very large profession, of about thirty-eight or 39,000 people, and begin to attribute the type of information that you have start to put into the day-to-day vernacular of eye care. You know, your podcast, by the way, is just outstanding. If anybody's not listening to it, they yeah, should. Thank you. Uh, it's 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 the best twenty five minutes in a car, <laughs> waiting in traffic. All you know that's that's um, fine
0: with me. I love I love as someone who sits in traffic a lot, any relief is uh, is welcome. So uh, thank there you. you. That's a kind comment.
2: So yes, I think I think it's time, and I, I think we will enjoy it tremendously. And I know with the level of uh, professionalism and um, and depth that you bring to this pro- to this process, I think you will make this a very successful program. So I'm looking forward to. it.
0: All right, now we'll get back into this conversation with Susan Orr of Notel. Well, now was a great time to, uh, to talk about uh, Notel. Can you, can you give us a sense of uh, a little bit of history of its uh, technology, how the company came together?
1: A great way to describe Notel is an 18-year-old startup. In other words, we're, in, uh, we're, we're an innovative company that's had several um, life cycles. Uh, you may know, but the company started in Tel Aviv, and it was started by two ophthalmologists, um, Barack um, Asman and Yair Ulster, and they were focused on identifying patients who have the tra- uh, wet AMD, who transitioned from, from dry to wet. And that was back in the early 2000s. It was a long time ago. They actually developed and launched a product for in-office use prior to the availability of OCT. As you probably know, OCT didn't come around until after the first anti-VEGF studies. And that product was licensed by Zeiss and marketed. However, it had a uh, fairly quick demise because OCT came to the market, which is imaging as opposed to a subjective test. So the principle, however, of that first product, preferential hyperacuity perimetry, um, was applied to a home testing device. So at the time, putting an OCT device in everyone's home wasn't a viable path forward. It was a new technology, expensive. If you could have done that, I'm sure they would have. But at the time, The technology that supports 4C Home had been validated for the in-office device and was developed as an individual personalized testing device to track and identify changes in the patient's vision that, when analyzed with a machine learning algorithm, would indicate they have a um, higher uh, than normal probability for progress having progressed to wet AMD. So that device, 4C Home, and the system that surrounds it was cleared later on in um, the early teens of the 2000 era. And that's really what took us to the marketplace in the U.S. and turned us um, back into a a commercial uh, venture from the the first product.
0: Talk a bit about uh, how the penetration of of 4C Home. How many uh, units are you out there? I don't know how you would measure that, but... But can you give us a little update on it, on how often it's being used?
1: Yeah, so let me caveat it by saying that the device itself is not the extent of the product. I would say that if you were defining no television, what we do is we offer home diagnostic testing. We extend diagnostic testing from the clinic to the home to improve outcomes, reduce treatment burden, and to... Um, reduce or address health economics. So when you think about the product, the product's not just the device. It's the wireless communication to the cloud, the analysis by the artificial intelligence algorithm in the cloud. More than that, behind the scenes, we have a group of of individuals who work with the patients. We are actually a healthcare provider. We are able to, we have reimbursement under Medicare, we bill Medicare, we work directly with the patients, and we maintain that relationship with them throughout the duration of their testing. So when we talk about the um, market that we're in today, that back end part, probably took longer to develop than the device, although I don't think our uh, R&D team would be happy with me saying that. No one has really done this before in ophthalmology. There are a few companies that use our business model in the cardiac space. Uh, The other one is in sleep apnea, but it's limited, expanding rapidly, but, um, but limited. So for us, we have spent the last two years Perfecting the relationship with the patient, providing the information they need when they need it, bringing them on board, instructing them on how to use the device, providing cell phone apps and portals where they can look at their testing um, frequency and information on the on the disease. So currently, our quote test market that supports that in the field is 12 market regions, uh, mainly on the East Coast, Central North and South, and then the the West Coast. Um, and with uh, that sales force of 12 representatives, <clears throat> we currently have uh, just over 8,000 patients that are monitoring their vision routinely and using the 4C home AMD monitoring program.
0: So does it require, uh, obviously they have to change their behavior, they have, to, they have to go through the testing, but does it require you to have a way to help them change their behavior? You mentioned the apps earlier on, and that's something we obviously hear more and more about in healthcare. having these apps to help people uh, change the way they're doing things to to achieve a healthier outcome. Is this something that Notel has been working on for for quite a long time?
1: Yeah, I would say that the apps and the portal are almost supplementary. If you think about um, the patient population that we're working with, uh, the average patient is in their 70s or 80s, Not all are technically uh, savvy, they don't all have cell phones, even only about half have email accounts. So the that is definitely an expanding area in the future. Every year as the population ages, 65 and 75-year-olds become more uh, smartphone-adept and computer-savvy. But today, a large portion of the relationship with the patient is actually one-on-one. We have a a group of certified ophthalmic technicians who uh, contact the patient, who educate the patients on how to use the device, what the test is for, why they were prescribed, the monitoring program, and stick with that patient throughout their testing duration. Um, Like any other clinic, we also have a billing department to address uh, insurance issues, We have a a group of technicians who work on technical support for the device with the patients. So a lot of that relationship, believe it or not, is still by phone. This patient population still likes letters and hard copy paper and they like the telephone. But we are migrating more and more patients to our support that's delivered uh, from a digital perspective. And in my Opinion in five years, the ratio will completely flip, and most people will be um, utilizing our support from a digital perspective.
0: Who is making the initial contact w- with with the patient to tell them that this is a uh, something that they may want to use?
1: Well, Our product is only available through prescription by their treating physician or by their um, eye care practitioner. So that means that when they're in the clinic. And the doctor uh, diagnoses or shares with the patient that they have intermediate AMD and they're at risk for progression to the more uh, sight-threatening advanced wet AMD, the doctor can prescribe for the patient. The patient receives an information kit, which lets them know um, how this works. The first contact is actually with our onboarding team, who are trained individuals who've worked in an eye doctor's office. Uh, they have a certification as a, a technician, and they educate the patient. So they uh, reach out and they connect by phone and have usually about a 20-minute conversation. Some patients stay on the phone for 45 minutes. Um, we did have an ophthalmologist patient who didn't need too much background who was on the phone for five minutes. Uh, but in general, that's the initial contact. The device is shipped to the patient. And they have pre-scheduled a setup call with the patient where they walk them through. There's a tutorial built into the device. The device works with either cellular connection to the cloud or with Wi-Fi. They can do either. And we help them uh, put that together. And then they start testing. And from then on, it's simply a matter of the data going to the cloud, being analyzed by the algorithm, and if there's a significant change from baseline, that patient's physician is notified and the patient is brought into the practice by their physician and their staff for evaluation and potentially treatment for wet AMD.
0: Why is this degree of monitoring so essential? What is it, what is it that 4C uh, that will help or 4C Home will help determine?
1: So let let me maybe rephrase your question and take that liberty is I think what you're saying is what's the unmet need that we are addressing with 4C home, which is the critical bottom line question for the product. I accept your amendment
0: of my question. <laughs> <laughs> Please proceed.
1: So in the United States, on average, patients are diagnosed with WET AMD with slightly worse than twenty eighty vision. And 2080 vision, of course, doesn't allow you to drive a car. It doesn't allow you to read very well. It doesn't make viewing faces um, uh, a pleasurable experience. It it really does impact your quality of life. And we have great drugs out there. We have multiple anti-VEGF drugs that have been available for over 10 years. And those drugs do a great job at reducing the uh, fluid um, from the disease initially, and also um, at maintaining vision, right? So the challenge is that in the real world, if you're diagnosed at 2083, what we see from large real-world data registries like the IRIS registry that the American Academy of Ophthalmology maintains is that on average, patient's vision doesn't change more than, more than a couple letters with treatment. Part of that is treatment burden. It's the modality of treatment, and we're hoping to target that with our second product. But the bottom line is where you're diagnosed with wet AMD is pretty much where you stay. So if you catch your patient at 2080... That's their life story. If you catch your patient with better vision, you can maintain it with these drugs. In a very large 1,500-patient randomized controlled clinical trial that was conducted as part of the ARIDS-2 program in conjunction with the National Eye Institute, 94% of patients who tested with 4C home maintained 20, 40, or better vision. In other words, they started their treatment with good visual acuity, giving them the optimal opportunity to maintain good functional vision over the course of their wet AMD uh, disease management.
0: Well, let's let's get into sort of your next generation, I suppose, of products. Um, talk a bit about uh, the, the OCT system and, and what, where the promise is with, with that because this is a, a huge step forward to be able to provide this sort of monitoring in the home, but, uh, give us a little background on the no-till home OCT system.
1: Yeah. So home OCT has been something people have talked about since OCT came to the market. Uh, OCT machines sit in clinics, they're expensive. I think the lowest cost commercial machine for in-office is probably in the $40,000 range. And I think they go up to maybe around $120,000 with various features. And it really was or is a disruptive technology because it allows physicians to image uh, the retina and image the fluid and the pathophysiology associated with disease. The beauty about taking that technology, miniaturizing it, placing it in a patient's home and redesigning it so a patient can self-operate the device without a technician standing there lining up their eyes and their chin is that the doctor can access the OCT data on an ongoing basis, not just once a month or once every two or three months when the patient's in the office. And if you think back to my comment that patients aren't currently uh, obtaining optimal benefits, a large part of that is just because of the flow of patients, the number of patients, and the treatment burden associated with a patient who's 80 going into the office uh, for a, a checkup. And as you probably know, Physicians in the U.S. have largely migrated to what we call treat and extend. They treat the patient, estimate when the next injection would be needed, and the patient comes back in. In clinical trials at the beginning, patients were uh, treated every month on the month, for 12 months. So what you have in reality is a window of time between office visits where there's potential for the disease to um, recur or to be active. In other words, there's additional exudation, uh, recurrent exudation. And every retina doctor will tell you that reducing the number of wet days for a patient uh, is uh, equated with improving their long-term vision outcomes. What HOMOCT will do is provide that information to inform the doctor as soon as the disease recurs or changes based on parameters they select between office visits. The patient then will be able to return to the office and uh, for treatment when treatment's needed. It's really the very early stages of personalized medicine. People get what they need. And then you can expand that and you look at what people are doing in the anti-VEGF space developing sustained delivery drugs, drugs that last more than one month or two months, implantable devices that release drug over time. If every patient was able to take that drug and last for X period of time, 100%, you would just bring them back every three months or every six months because 100% of patients would fit that profile. But that's not true. Patients have very differentiated levels of anti-VEGF requirement, For various reasons. Some we understand and some we don't. So, in the face of this new technology, HOMO-CT will play an even more important role because it will enable the optimization of these new therapies and delivery modalities in the wet AMD space.
0: So, where are you in the development of the HOMO-CT system?
1: Well, I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, We've had some uh, really good feedback from the FDA recently. Um, Just over the Thanksgiving break, we received confirmation that we've obtained a breakthrough designation for our HOMO CT system, uh, which really highlights the innovation and the benefit that this product can bring to patients. Uh, Then over the Christmas break, we received notification that we were selected by the FDA for uh, an OCT pilot that would accelerate OCT innovation, again, bringing it to patients in need uh, more quickly. So maybe we should take another holiday and we'll get more good news. But we're very excited about both of those because it really... Um, it, instead of drinking our own Kool-Aid, it shows that the FDA agrees with the value that this product will bring to patients, and they believe uh, that it's disruptive and, and innovative. Uh, there's been only a handful of devices that have been selected for breakthrough designation on the device side since the program was introduced, so we're extremely um, pleased and and happy to have to have a product in that um, pathway. As far as where we are, we're in clinical trials in the US. We conducted a lot of uh, smaller trials in Israel where our uh, Israeli-based innovation center is located with our software and hardware engineers. And their focus was, of course, developing the device and validating um, the features. They also worked with patients in multiple sequential trials to validate the usability of a self operation feature. So, that is now, um, that that clinical trial in the US in the clinic has been uh, initiated, and we are collecting images from our own device. I haven't shared this, but the device is spectral domain. So, these image quality, the quality of these B scans is excellent. When we show them to retina doctors, uh, honestly, they're they're in disbelief that that is actually from a device that's going to cost under $2,000 and deliver a raster of B scans. Um, It may not be equivalent to the highest $120,000 machine but it's extremely clear spectral domain images and uh, currently we're in that uh, clinical trial. We also are validating the algorithm. Uh, We've run a validation study uh, analyzing images from Heidelberg And we'll be doing the same with our own OCT is validating the uh, comparability of the interpretation of those images with our algorithm compared to retina specialists. And with Heidelberg, when our algorithm analyzed the images, it was equivalent to uh, when retina specialists analyzed images from Heidelberg. So we feel very confident that the tool will be something that physicians will have confidence in and be willing to utilize in their practice.
0: And the payers are on board with uh, with paying for these, or is this a private pay program?
1: It's not private pay. It's not planned to be private pay. <laughs> I should <laughs> say it's forward-looking there. Um, we have reimbursement for 4C Home with Medicare, and uh, again, we do that as a health care provider. We're like any other lab, a blood lab, a mammogram lab where um, in those models, you send the patient to the clinic and they do the analysis there. Our patients are at home, but we still do the analysis of the data. And we've done initial market research, uh, market access research specifically, looking um, at what the uh, payer's perspective is and how much they are willing to pay. And I can tell you that our market access person was uh, said this was one of the most pleasant surprises at the back end of that market access research after 25 years in the field. So, we feel that we are, we're very confident we'll be able to demonstrate that value proposition and our current indicators from payers is that we will uh, be able to obtain a reimbursement.
0: Fantastic. Well, looking forward, I mean, we're assuming things play out as you as you hope they will, and 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 you get the approval that that's necessary, and all the technology works. What what do you see this looking like in, in I don't know maybe five years or so? Is there going to be uh, two of these units in uh, in in many households? Is it going to be just uh, something equivalent to I don't know if there's a equivalent home monitoring sort of model to this? I mean, certainly there are things for as as you mentioned. I mean. There's there's testing for 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 glucose levels and things like that, but that's far different than this. I don't know if there's anything out there that is uh, would be quite as uh, effective in in, in tracking a uh, person's eye health as as this might be.
1: Yeah, there as you say, there's a lot of smart you know there's a lot of devices, Apple watches that take blood pressure, and I think now they have some form of ECG. The difference between Um, those products or taking your blood pressure at home and this are related to the analysis of the data. You know, we've developed an artificial algorithm that actually looks at the B scans and detects changes or detects fluid. It doesn't even have to know that it wasn't there before. It will tell you that there's activity in the retina and it will tell you where it is. Is it subretinal or intraretinal, and it will quantify the volume of fluid. So our artificial intelligence analysis really separates it from these off-the-shelf commercial um, home monitoring technologies. There's more similar analogies, as I said, in the cardiac space. When I look forward, I see that we as a company have built a platform that interfaces with patients and physicians. Our first product on that platform is 4C Home. Our second product is Homo CT, but that's not the limit of diagnostics through which disease management could be improved if they were placed in the home. One can envision having uh, monitoring for glaucoma patients in the home to identify patients who are compliant or patients who are non-responsive to therapy. It's always a dilemma for a glaucoma doctor. Are they not taking the drugs? Or are they not working? Or to titrate to the right dose. Um, you can look at any new diagnostic and either you know, we're able to take a device that was developed by someone else or a device that our team in Israel develops, write the software and analyze the data to create the algorithm and put that device on our platform that leverages all of our people who talk to patients, all of the individuals who manage the repairs and the shipment, et cetera. So I see No as this ecosystem, this platform of capabilities that's going to be probably adopted across many different therapeutic areas beyond where it is right now. I can tell you one of my favorite podcasts, is one by a fellow named Joshua Smith, and he's talking about a liquid assay that identifies exosomes in the blood which are indicative of recurrent cancer. Can you envision having a device sitting on your cancer, uh, sitting on your counter? You had cancer five years ago, and every day you just put your finger on it, get a little drop, and it tells you whether your levels have gone up over time and whether you should go back to the doctor because the cancer may have recurred you know, in cancer, one month, two months earlier detection equals years of lifetime on the back end. What we're doing is just the tip of the iceberg for what medicine is going to look like in ten years, in twenty years?
0: Well, this is uh, very, very exciting, and uh, this is a great company to uh, to be leading. So, congratulations again to you.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm very excited about the future and humbled to be in the position to lead lead this company.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, for joining us today and for sharing your story on the podcast.
1: You're most welcome, Tom.
0: All right, well, that was a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on the OIS Podcast. Once again, if you wouldn't mind telling your friends about the podcast, subscribing to the podcast, commenting on the podcast, all of that would be extremely helpful. Please reach out to me. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom, or you can email me Tom at com. That's the word health, followed by letters E-G-Y.com. G is the producer of the OIS Podcast and our OIS events, including the upcoming OIS at Seco, which is happening on February, February 21st. In New Orleans. So go to OIS.net to register and tune in next week. We'll have another great tale of innovation for you on the OIS podcast.